This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. $10 reward. Abscond it from the household of the President of the United States on Saturday afternoon. Oni Judge, a light mulatto girl, much freckled, with very black eyes and bushy black hair. She is of middle stature, but slender and delicately made, about 20 years of age. She has many changes of very good clothes of all sorts, but they are not sufficiently recollected to describe. As there was no suspicion of her going off, and it happened without the least provocation, it is not easy to conjecture whether she is gone, or fully what her design is. But as she may attempt to escape by water, all masters of vessels and others are cautioned against receiving her on board, although she may and probably will endeavor to pass for a free woman, and it is said has wherewithal to pay her passage. Ten dollars will be paid to any person, white or black, who will bring her home, if taken in the city, or on board any vessel in the harbor and a further reasonable sum if apprehended and brought home from a greater distance and in proportion to the distance. Fred Kitt, Stewart. Before we get enmeshed in the political struggles of Washington's last year and the election of 1796, I thought this would be a good time to take a look at the story of Oni Judge, a story that, while it has its roots in the personal life of the Washingtons, also became entangled with Washington's public affairs. When I set my mind to start this podcast, I knew that I would devote an episode to Oni, as her story has stood out in my mind for many years now, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to share it with all of you. I'm your host, Jerry Landry, and I welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. The life of Oni Judge began in June 1773, a month that was marked by a rare snow at Mount Vernon, her birthplace. Both her parents were legally owned by the Washingtons. Her father temporarily, her mother permanently. Oni, or Ona as she is sometimes referred, was born to an enslaved interracial mother and a white indentured servant. Her father, from whom she would derive her surname, was Andrew Judge, who had entered into a four-year indentured servitude in order to gain passage to the American colonies from England. Judge served as a tailor for the Washingtons and is credited as, quote, creating the blue uniform worn by George Washington when he was named Commander-in-Chief of the American Forces. Her mother, meanwhile, was named Betty, sometimes known as Mulatto Betty, and had been born into slavery and owned by Daniel Park Custis, Martha Washington's first husband. Upon Custis's death, Betty remained a part of the Custis estate in a classification that would come to be known as a dower slave. Though Martha and then George, upon their marriage, managed the dower slaves and were able to use them however they saw fit, these enslaved people were not directly owned by George Washington, but rather remained a part of the Custis estate from which Martha and her descendants were to benefit. We'll talk more about this a bit later, but just know that this is an important distinction as there were specific rules governing the enslaved people held under the Custis estate. Betty served as a clothier in the Washington's household, which brought her into contact with Andrew Judge, the tailor. We know little about what happened between the two, whether this was a romantic pairing or if it was non-consensual, 
though ethically, as noted by historian Erica Armstrong Dunbar. There is a question of how much Betty could consent, as, quote, Although he was a servant, Andrew Judge was a white man with the power to command or force a sexual relationship with the enslaved Betty. What we do know is that Betty understood that the child of this union would be born enslaved, and after Judge's period of servitude was over, he left and established his own home in Fairfax County, leaving his newborn daughter and her mother at Mount Vernon. So what was life like for the young enslaved girl? As can be imagined, we know little about Ona's early life in particular, but we do know the typical life for enslaved children. As her mother worked in the mansion household, Betty and Ona would have lived, quote, across the road from the blacksmith's forge in the communal space known as the quarters, or house for families. This was a two-story structure that was ultimately demolished in 1792 to make way for the brick slave quarters that now exist on the North Lane at Mount Vernon. As Betty and the other enslaved women who worked at the mansion house were expected to start at sunrise and not finish until sundown, Ona and other enslaved children were often left when they were very young, quote, in the quarters without much supervision beyond the older slave women, who were deemed incapable of working in the fields and no longer up to the task of domestic work. Dunbar in her book on Ona Judge asserts that this experience caused Ona, quote, to learn how to fend for herself. The mortality rate for enslaved children was high, but should they survive to the ages of 9 to 14, the children, quote, began structured labor and performed odd jobs just as soon as they were physically able. Oni was not an only child, as Betty had numerous other children by other fathers. The most important in terms of Oni's life were her brother Austin, who had been born around 1757 and thus had reached working age by the time Oni was born, and her sister Betty Davis, born in 1771, and thus much closer to Oni's age. The first time that Oni begins to step out of the historical shadows and onto the record as more than a name on a ledger is in 1789, when Martha Washington chooses the 16-year-old young woman as her attendant to accompany her to New York City, where George Washington had already gone to assumed office as the first president. Although we don't have her own words to verify this, one can imagine that the idea of traveling to New York was rather of a shock to the young Ona, who had never traveled away from Mount Vernon. She would, however, have her brother Austin for company, as he had been chosen as another of the seven enslaved people to journey to the nation's capital with the new First Lady. Martha's nephew, Robert Lewis, who was also journeying with her, wrote the following account of their departure on May 16th. Quote, after an early dinner and making all necessary arrangements in which we were greatly retarded, it brought us to three o'clock in the afternoon when we left Mount Vernon. The servants of the house and a number of field negroes made their appearance to take leave of their mistress. Numbers of these wretches were most affected, and my aunt equally so. This passage gives a sense of just how skewed the sense of reality was for some in the slave-owning class. It seems to have not crossed Robert Lewis's mind that the enslaved people were not quote-unquote most affected because their mistress was leaving, but rather because their siblings or parents or spouses or children or friends were leaving for a place of which many had no conception and into uncertain conditions, as well as the uncertainty of whether they'd see any of them again, and if so, when that would be. Ona's mother was losing her son and daughter. Austin was married with kids. Their family was being broken apart, and none of them had any say in the matter. Further, it wasn't like they would be able to write to one another, even if any of them knew how to write. They might be able to exchange messages if someone was sent back to Mount Vernon for something, 
but that would likely be sporadic. This was quite possibly their final goodbye. Meanwhile, those remaining would be faced with a new master in charge. George Augustine Washington, the president's nephew, was being left in charge of the plantation while his uncle and aunt were away. New masters meant new circumstances, which could be either for the better or worse. And none of the enslaved people had any say or could do anything about the changing circumstances, come what may. Change can be stressful for anyone, but for the enslaved and the disempowered, it can be absolutely terrifying. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. The seven enslaved individuals who traveled with Martha had been chosen specifically because they were seen as being some of the least likely to try to escape, which was a danger that was in the mind of the Washingtons, as they knew the opportunities would be greater in the urban northern city of New York. While New York still allowed for slavery, there was a push in other northern states to end the practice. Upon their arrival in New York, the seven would go to work and settle into the new routines. As described by historian Henry Weinsack, Quote, at the Cherry Street house of the president in New York, Ona was responsible for the care of Martha's clothes and hair. She quaffed Martha's hair every morning and helped her dress for the arduous social life the presidency imposed. Martha had chosen Judge not only for her skills, but for her appearance. She was young, well-groomed, and light-skinned, exactly the traits needed in a young woman who would accompany the first lady on all her social and official visits. As we know from our narrative, the tenure in New York would be brief, as the Residence Act was passed in 1790, establishing Philadelphia as the temporary capital, while work started on the federal city on the Potomac River. As we discussed in episode 1.12, the move to Philadelphia posed an issue, as state law in Pennsylvania was that any adult slave resident in the state for six consecutive months was free. Oney at this point was technically a minor, so was exempted from this provision. But Washington and his secretary, Tobias Lear, devised a system in which the adult enslaved individuals would be sent back to Mount Vernon, supposedly for the generous reason of allowing them to visit their families, which, once they left the state of Pennsylvania, reset the six-month clock. Though they were afraid that those enslaved would learn the reasons for the trips to Mount Vernon, it seemed the only workable solution to the Washingtons. Not only was Washington worried about losing the slave labor or the PR hornet's nest that it might cause were one of the enslaved people to seek their freedom, but as he noted in a letter to Lear about the situation in April 1791, quote, as all except Hercules and Paris are dour Negroes, it behooves me to prevent the emancipation of them. Otherwise, I shall not only lose the use of them, but may have them to pay for. This seems like as good of a time as any to discuss the differentiation between the dower slaves and the other enslaved people in the Washington's possession. When Daniel Custis died, he had not left a will. Thus, quote, under Virginia law, his estate had been divided into three parts for his wife and two children, 
Under the law, Martha's dower share became Washington's property immediately upon their marriage. By court order, Washington became legal guardian of both Custis children with control of their finances. Two-thirds of the land and slaves went to Jackie, Martha's son, in name, but under Washington's guardianship. Martha received the remaining third for her use during her lifetime only. These lands and slaves came under George Washington's management, but he could not sell them because after Martha's death, they would revert to the Custis estate earmarked for Jackie. Patsy, Martha's daughter, received no land or slaves, her inheritance being entirely in cash and securities. With me so far? Good. Because it gets more complicated. Surprise, surprise! When the enslaved individuals that Washington owned outright were brought together with the Custis Dower slaves, they started intermarrying, which created a financial and legal entanglement that Washington was responsible for accounting. On the ledger, Washington had to account for all the enslaved individuals that were part of the estate, which would then go to Jackie, or after Jackie's death, Jackie's heirs upon Martha's death. As he was willingly taking some of the dower slaves into a state that had a provision for emancipation, Washington felt that he could be held financially responsible for reimbursing the state for any dower slaves that gained their freedom while working in the president's house in Philadelphia. FYI, dear listener, stick a pen in that thought, will you? As noted by Dunbar, the move to Philadelphia also added an extra danger, whether the Washingtons realized it or not. The president's house on Market Street was rather of close quarters. As had been the case in New York, the Washingtons were not able to rely solely on enslaved labor and had to hire additional servants. Unlike in New York, though, according to Dunbar, the enslaved individuals interacted with their free white counterparts more closely due to the close quarters and, quote, watch their comrades receive pay for their labor, move about the city with relative ease, and make decisions about their lives, including even the right to leave their employer. The close quarters, however, also posed a risk for Ona and Maul, the other female enslaved person that the Washingtons had brought from Mount Vernon. Again, from Dunbar, quote, most bondwomen, i.e. enslaved females, dreaded the sleeping accommodations for house slaves as living in the same quarters as their owners put them at risk for sexual attack. They preferred the slave cabins offered to field slaves on larger plantations. While the dirt-floored slave cabins were rough, with very little to no insulation during the cold Virginia winters or the terribly hot summers, they provided what house slaves longed for, privacy. The close accommodations in Philadelphia with so many men about, both free and enslaved, put Ona and Maul, quote, in constant jeopardy of rape and very little could prevent a knife-wielding assailant from forcing himself upon them. Ona and Maul did have one advantage, though. They were assigned to sleep in the same room as the Washington's grandchildren, Nellie and Washi. The two were still young, 11 and 9 respectively, when the Washingtons made the move to Philadelphia. This meant, of course, that the two, Maul especially, as that was her assigned task, had to, quote, be available to soothe the grandchildren when they were sick and when they had nightmares. It likely meant some sleepless nights for Oni, which would lead into a day of tending to Martha Washington's needs. But it also meant that it was not likely that a man living in the household would sneak into her bedroom during the night for fear of disturbing the child in the room and thus earning Washington's ire. As everyone started settling into life in Philadelphia, the Washingtons and Tobias Lear began working through the rotation system. Austin, Ona's brother, was sent back to Mount Vernon, supposedly according to Martha Washington, quote, to fulfill my promises to his wife, to allow them to be reunited on a regular basis. 
During a period where they feared that the enslaved persons not of age, including Oni, would be eligible to gain their freedom, Martha planned a quick trip to nearby Trenton, New Jersey. Washington took some of the enslaved people with him on his southern tour in 1791. The first round seemed to be working well, until they reached the period where they needed to reset the clock for their cook, Hercules. As described by Dunbar, quote, As the president's famed chef, Hercules cultivated a relationship with the Washingtons that earned him an elevated status and a modicum of respect. He had been able to put away a good savings from the income he earned at the Washingtons' permission, quote, by selling unwanted kitchen slops, used tea leaves, animal skins, and leftover stock, could fetch a decent price at market, permitting the enslaved chef to earn between $1 and $200 a year. He also had a degree of freedom that some of the other enslaved people in the household did not, and interacted with new friends in Philadelphia. Somehow, it is not known whether it came from within the household or from his friends in the city. Hercules learned about the state law that would allow him to gain his freedom at around the same time when the Washingtons were beginning to work up an excuse for him to return to Mount Vernon. Hercules ultimately chose to return to Virginia as he had two young daughters still at the plantation, and his son, though in Philadelphia, was viewed disfavorably by the Washingtons. He knew that seeking his freedom would put them all at risk, and thus he returned to Virginia. However, Tobias Lear did discover that Hercules knew of the Pennsylvania law and confronted him about it. Quote, Hercules appeared agitated and desperate when he explained to the secretary that he had no intentions of leaving his owners and that his faithfulness had never swayed. Hercules was thus able to keep himself in the Washington's good graces until Washington's birthday in 1797 when he finally, quote, ran away, and was never seen again. As the Washingtons were at the time preparing to head back to Mount Vernon for the final time, Hercules likely saw it as his now-or-never opportunity. In the meantime, though, the six-month resetting-the-clock scheme worked, and it allowed the enslaved individuals at the president's house to visit with family and loved ones back at Mount Vernon and to keep abreast of news from home. Thus, it is quite probable that Ona learned of the whippings received by Charlotte, her brother Austin's wife, in early 1793. The account of it we have is from the estate manager at the time at Mount Vernon, Anthony Whitting, in a letter to Washington, and goes as follows. Quote, Charlotte, I guess, will be reported sick this week. I gave her a whipping on Saturday, and I find she don't intend to work in order, I suppose, to be even with me. When I was calling out the river hogs, she sent by Muddy Hole David, requesting I would give her a spare rib, as she longed for it. This I knew to be false, and thought it to be a piece of impudence in her, which she has a great share of. I did not send it, but on Saturday I sent one to each of the women at the quarter. Of course, she had one with the rest, but she, I fancy, watched me home, and as soon as I got in the house, brings the spare rib and throws down at the door, affronted, I suppose, at my not sending it on Thursday, told me, indeed, she wanted none of my meat, and was in short very impudent. I took a hickory switch which I rode with and gave her a very good whipping. She certainly could come for nothing else. On Monday morning, Mrs. Ellers informed me she had sent the work, but Charlotte had sent it back. I went to the cur and gave a little more, but I believe she has not done anything yet under a pretense of her finger receiving a blow and was swelled. 
She threatens me very much with informing Lady Washington when she comes home, and she says she has not been whipped for 14 years past. But I fully expect I shall have to give her some more of it before she will behave herself, for I am determined to lower her spirit or skin her back. Two beatings at least, and possibly more, over a piece of spare rib. Even worse, Washington, in his response, told Whitting that, quote, Your treatment of Charlotte was very proper. And if she or any other of the servants will not do their duty by fair means or are impertinent, correction as the only alternative must be administered. For all of his concerns about slavery and for all of his accomplishments for his country, this too must be remembered as part of Washington's legacy. Though he may have had his concerns about being a slave owner, so long as he remained one, he intended to see that work was done by any means necessary. Oni and her family were due for more pain in due time. In December 1794, Austin, the next on the six-month rotation, was sent back to Virginia. However, three days after he left Philadelphia, the president received word that, quote, Austin had experienced tremendous difficulty navigating a river in Harford, near Haverty Grace, Maryland, and was, with great difficulty, dragged out of the water. At the time the letter was written, the situation was grim, but Austin was still alive. Shortly after, though, Austin passed away, still only in his mid-thirties. Word was sent down to his family at Mount Vernon, and in short order, in January 1795, Ona's mother Betty passed away. With the deaths of Austin and Betty, Ona's ties with life at Mount Vernon were growing ever thinner. Now, before we get to the climax of Oni's tale, we must introduce one more person to the mix. Elizabeth Park Custis, also known as Betsy or Eliza. Though I previously mentioned Washi and Nellie, Betsy's siblings, who George and Martha Washington took into their household. Betsy was the eldest daughter of John Park Custis, or Jackie as he was known, Martha's son, and his wife, Eleanor Calvert. Betsy still lived in Virginia, and at age 19 was getting to that age where her mind was turning to marriage. In February 1796, the Washingtons were shocked to discover in a letter from Betsy that her thoughts of matrimony weren't just theoretical. She had a serious suitor. Thomas Law was a British businessman who, after living for years in India as an agent of the British government, had emigrated to the United States in 1794 and had become involved in land development in what would become Washington, D.C. Furthermore, he had become involved with the step-granddaughter of the man whom the future city was named after, a young woman 20 years his junior. The letter from Betsy in February was the first that the Washingtons had heard of this romance, and they were rather taken aback by the news. Law's situation was one that gave them pause. He was already the father of three children, two of whom had come from a relationship with an Indian woman, with Law bringing the children with him to the U.S. Of more concern to the president, however, was Law's British citizenship. At a time where the Jay Treaty was still a major issue, as we'll discuss in more detail in the next episode, as the debate and the attempts to derail the treaty were not yet at an end. Bringing a British citizen into the family could raise some red flags among a faction that already suspected that Washington, either knowingly or unknowingly, was selling out America to the British. Further, would Law take Betsy back to live in Britain after their marriage? If so, it would likely mean that the aging Washingtons would never see their granddaughter again. Though Washington ultimately wrote to both Betsy and Law, giving them his blessing, he asserted in his letter to Law that, quote, We shall hope that your fortunes, if not before, will, by this event, be fixed in America, 
For it would be a heart-rending circumstance if you should separate Eliza from her friends in this country. Though the Washingtons would get their wish and Eliza and her new husband would remain in the United States with Eliza's family, Martha Washington, as part of the nuptials, planned something that would take Ona away from her remaining family forever. Martha, knowing that Eliza was unprepared for dealing with household duties, decided that she would give Oni to her granddaughter to help her to establish her new household in the federal city. Somehow, word got back to Oni about the plans, and she quickly realized that time was short for her if she wished to avoid this new fate. As we discussed earlier, any kind of change was filled with anxiety for enslaved individuals due to the unknown of how things would change. But Ona had some foreknowledge in this case. Having been in the Washington household for so many years, Ona was aware of Eliza and knew that she had what had been described as a quote-unquote mercurial temperament. She was known for, quote, her stubbornness and complete disregard for protocol. Meanwhile, the new husband was an unknown, not just as to what kind of master he would be, but also whether he would force himself on Ona. He already had multiracial children as part of his household. What was to stop him? Meanwhile, it is likely that Ona knew of President Washington's issues with her sister, Betty Davis. It is noted that Betty was moved around between farms on the Mount Vernon estate a bit, and in a letter to his farm manager, William Pierce, on March 8, 1795, Washington expressed his displeasure at word that Betty had shown up as sick on two weekly farm reports in a row by asserting that, quote, if pretended ailments without apparent causes or visible effects will screen her from work, I shall get no service at all from her. For a more lazy, deceitful, and impudent hussy is not to be found in the United States than she is. Even if she could somehow get back to Mount Vernon, it is possible that Ona worried whether her sister, one of the last remaining relatives with whom she was close, would be there for long. With so much uncertainty filling her life, it seems that Ona made a choice to try to take some measure of control for herself. Ona made the choice to attempt an escape. It would not be easy for her, however. Due to the nature of her duties in the household, Ona was expected to be at Martha Washington's beck and call 24-7. All that she could do was pack and wait for an opportunity, one that finally came on May 21, 1796. While the Washingtons were at supper, Ona made her exit from the executive mansion and disappeared into the streets of Philadelphia. Though we know little about the arrangements that she had made, it is likely that Ona was assisted by free African Americans in the city. The only detail that we do know about her escape, which Ona shared decades later after his death, was that she left Philadelphia on a vessel, quote, commanded by Captain John Bowles. In an interview in 1845, Judge asserted that, quote, I never told his name till after he died a few years since, lest they should punish him for bringing me away. Bowles allowed Judge passage so that she could start a new life in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The Washingtons, meanwhile, discovered Ona's disappearance and had ads placed in local newspapers, including the one read in the intro calling for her return. Washington even received a report in late June of a rumor that Ona was in New York and was trying to make her way to Boston. However, every day that went by without her return, the less likely it became that she would be brought back. Meanwhile, Oni was learning to navigate the new world of Portsmouth. One item to note here is that slavery was in fact still legal in New Hampshire at this time. 
Now, I've seen some sources that claim that it was ended in the late 1780s, but from what I can tell, that seems to trace back to a revised tax code that went into effect in 1789 that said that, quote, slaves ceased to be known and held as property. However, it seems that many slave owners just considered this to be a tax break and did not include the people they enslaved as part of their taxable property. The practice of slavery was falling out of favor and, as noted by Dunbar, would be gone in Portsmouth in 1805. The state legislature would not codify the abolition of slavery, however, until 1857. When Ona arrived, though, she would meet both free and enslaved black people. The population was much smaller in Portsmouth, however. The overall population of the town at the time was around 5,000, and there were less than 800 African Americans in the entire state. Again, as noted by Dunbar, quote, there were fewer black people in the entire city of Portsmouth than there were slaves living in Mount Vernon. Ona would quickly learn that her labor in Portsmouth would be more physically demanding than it had been in Philadelphia. Dunbar speculates that through her connections with the free black community in Portsmouth, she was able to find a position in domestic labor. Whereas before, when her primary labor had been as a seamstress making clothes for the Washingtons, now she would have to do the scrubbing and the laundering and the cooking that others had been responsible for at Mount Vernon and the president's house. However, she was free and able to make decisions for herself, and there was the possibility of something better. While she had not been able to find a position as a seamstress before because she had no examples of her work or previous references, if she was able to save up some of her wages remaining after the cost of living, Ona might be able to buy material to produce new work. There was hope of better times ahead, if, of course, nothing went wrong. In August, only a few months after her escape, something went wrong. Ona, while going through the streets of Portsmouth, saw Elizabeth Langdon, the daughter of U.S. Senator John Langdon. Senator Langdon and his family had been regular visitors to the president's house, and Elizabeth was close to the Washington's granddaughter, Nellie. Though Ona tried to avoid contact and make herself as inconspicuous as possible, Elizabeth noticed her and mentioned the sighting to her father. Senator Langdon was aware of the Washington's escaped slave and thus sent word to the president. Now, we should note here that the law was not in Oney's favor. A fugitive slave law had been passed by Congress and signed by Washington in 1793, which, quote, allowed masters or their agents capturing fugitives to bring them to any magistrate, state or federal, to obtain a certificate of removal, and then to take the runaway back to the state where the slave owed service. The law provided fines for those who interfered with the rendition process and preserved master's rights to seek damages from those who knowingly helped fugitive slaves, with the fines imposed possibly going as high as $500, which is a hefty fine even today. But according to our friends at the Historical Currency Converter, was the equivalent of over $16,000 in 2015 currency. Thus, not only was there a process for a slave owner to get a person who had escaped captivity back, but there were also severe financial penalties for anyone who may assist the individual seeking their freedom. One has to wonder whether the president ever imagined when he was signing the bill that he might be putting it into use himself. It is a good thing for Ona that this was a difficult time politically for Washington. As we've already discussed and will discuss further as we conclude the series, the president was under an intense amount of political pressure as he tried to wrap up his term and personal pressure in trying to prepare his household to move back to Mount Vernon for good. 
After Ona's escape, the Washingtons made a trip to Mount Vernon for the summer and had returned to Philadelphia in late August with only a couple of enslaved people in their retinue for fear that more would try to escape. However, Ona was still a dower slave, and as such, George could be financially responsible if she was not retrieved. Martha also wanted Ona back. She and George had convinced themselves that she could not have sought her freedom on her own. No, she must have been lured away by a man. Somehow, a story came about that a Frenchman had seduced her and then abandoned her. According to the president, Oni, quote, was brought up and treated more like a child than a servant, a member of the family. So why on earth would she seek her freedom of her own accord? No, she was, quote, simple and inoffensive, had been tricked, and it was up to the Washingtons to bring her back. Thus begins a morally reprehensible correspondence in which Washington himself advocates for an illegal solution to the problem. The President of the United States would write to the Secretary of the Treasury on September 1st, 1796, in a letter which included the descriptions of Ona that I just mentioned, and asked Walcott to write, quote, to the collector of that port, i.e. Portsmouth, to ask him to recover and send her back. What will be the best method to effect it is difficult for me to say. If inquiries are made openly, her seducer, for she is simple and inoffensive herself, would take the alarm and adopt instant measures, if he is not tired of her, to secrete or remove her, to seize and put her on board a vessel bound immediately to this place, or to Alexandria, which I should like better, seems at first view to be the safest and least expensive. But if she is discovered, the collector, I'm persuaded, will pursue such measures as to him shall appear best, to effect those ends, and the cost shall be reimbursed and with thanks. This was not the prescribed method for retrieving a fugitive slave under the law of 1793, and it is hard to conceive that Washington was not aware of that fact. The problem was that, though Washington wanted to secure Ona's return, he also did not want it to go public. And if he went the legal route, it would. Thus, he chose to use his current position and the bureaucracy that he had at his command to his advantage. A public servant would be asked to handle Washington's private business. Secretary Walcott wrote to the collector of customs at Portsmouth, Joseph Whipple, about the situation. And Whipple said that he, quote, would with great pleasure execute the president's wishes in the matter to which it relates. Now, the choice of Whipple for this assignment was problematic for two reasons. One, Whipple was beginning to lean politically more towards the Democratic-Republicans and would indeed break completely with the Federalists and leave his post as collector in the Adams administration. Two, the Whipples had, starting in the 1780s, emancipated all of their slaves. Whipple would track down Ona, though, and, using the prospect of a job as a domestic servant as a lure, secured an interview with Judge. His questions, however, became ever more personal as he worked to verify her identity, and Ona grew suspicious. Whipple finally revealed his true purpose and asked Ona if she would willingly agree to go back to the Washingtons if he could get them to promise to free her once George and Martha passed on. Ona at first protested and said that she valued her freedom too much to return, but then, fearing that Whipple might not let her leave if she said otherwise, agreed to his plan and to meet the ship that Whipple would arrange to return her to Virginia. Whipple made the arrangements, and when the time came, Ona did not appear at the dock. 
Whipple now had turned to the other party in the affair and wrote back to Walcott that he had been unsuccessful in his attempt to secure Ona's return. However, he made a point of trying to clarify the false story about her being lured away and assured the secretary that, quote, a thirst for complete freedom, which she was informed would take place on her arrival here, had been her only motive for absconding. He put forward two proposals on how to proceed. One was the compromise he had suggested to Ona of her returning to enslavement with the promise of being freed upon the death of George and Martha, and the other was to go the legal route. He made it pretty clear, though, that without Ona's agreement to the compromise, there was little he could, or more poignantly, was willing to do. Washington, upon being informed of the situation by Walcott, decided to write to Whipple directly on November 28th. He immediately shot down Whipple's proposed compromise and insisted that, quote, however well disposed I might be to gradual abolition or even to an entire emancipation of that description of people, if the latter was in itself practicable at this moment, it would neither be politic or just to reward unfaithfulness with a premature preference. Unspoken in his letter was that legally, as Ona was a dower slave, he couldn't free her without being held financially responsible. And the condition of her being freed upon their deaths was untenable, as she would then be the property of Jackie's heirs. Whipple would write back on December 22nd to assure the president that, quote, I sincerely lament the ill success of my endeavors to restore to your lady her servant. Though he pledged to do what he could to help, he also warned the president that slave owners themselves could, quote, prevent this growing evil. All that was to be done was to emancipate those they had enslaved. I think these two letters, the one from Washington and Whipple's reply, reflect what would come to be the divide between North and South. Washington the Southerner could not see how emancipation could happen, while Whipple the Northerner was seeing it happen around him. Granted, New Hampshire was never anywhere near as dependent on the labor of the enslaved as Virginia, but as was discussed in episode 1.24, Robert Carter, a fellow Virginian, had proven that it was possible to emancipate a large number of enslaved individuals and still make a living with some adjustments and sacrifices. Therein lies the rub, though. Sacrifices. It is easy for us in the present day, 2018 as of this recording, to look back and proclaim it to be simple. But before we judge, we should also think of the problems of our time. On how many issues are we as a society making decisions, though a good number of us know them to be the wrong choices and that they are negatively impacting others? History may look at us and ask why we allowed some people to starve to death while others had excess food on their tables, or why some people had houses far larger than their family could use while others were left out in the elements without a roof over their heads. The future may look back at our time and ask why we continue to use non-sustainable natural resources to make grocery bags, toothbrushes, and fuel when there were other sustainable options available. Or they may ask why we didn't do more to end modern forms of slavery. Every time faces challenges, and history will judge how we met them. My hope is that in our time, that we will take the mistakes of the past as examples and ask ourselves what we would be willing to sacrifice in order to make better choices in the present day to the benefit of all. A little change may go a long way in the life of another person or for the world yet to come. But I digress. 
Ona. Around the time that Whipple was writing his reply to Washington in December 1796, Ona had made the decision to marry Jack Staines, a free black sailor. The Whipple would cause them a little trouble by informing the clerk in Portsmouth of Ona's status as a fugitive slave, and the clerk would refuse to grant them a marriage certificate. They would go to the neighboring town of Greenland, where they obtained the certificate, then were married in January 1797. The following year, Ona would give birth to her first child, a girl that, oddly enough, they decided to name Eliza. Remember Elizabeth Park Custis, a.k.a. Betsy R. Eliza? Was this name a reminder of the impetus that caused her to seek her freedom? We have no way of knowing. The year after, 1799, the Washingtons would seek once more to reclaim Ona, sending Martha's nephew, Burwell Bassett Jr., to New Hampshire to negotiate her return. Bassett arrived in Portsmouth while Jack Staines was out at sea and first confronted Ona, then, when she refused to come along willingly, went to Senator John Langdon for assistance in removing her by force if necessary. Word got back to Ona of Bassett's plan, and she and her daughter fled to neighboring Greenland, where they were taken in by a free black family. When Bassett returned to the Staines household, he found it deserted, and thus had to return to Virginia in October empty-handed. The danger of being brought back into captivity would never fade for Ona for the rest of her life, but she would go on with her life. The Staines would have two more children, with one being named Nancy, the same name as the ship that Ona had taken from Philadelphia to Portsmouth. Her husband died in 1803 of unknown circumstances. After his death and for the remainder of her life, Ona would struggle to support her family. In February 1832, her daughter Eliza would pass away after a, quote, long and distressing illness, and was followed in September 1833 by Nancy. Ona's story would finally be made public in 1845 when the Reverend Thomas Archibald interviewed Ona and had the interview published in the Granite Freeman, an abolitionist newspaper. Two years later, Ona's story would be published again, this time in The Liberator, the largest abolitionist paper of the time. Ona's life would come to an end on February 25, 1848. Though it may have been a difficult and challenging life, it was at least one where Ona had been able to achieve a level of control that would have been impossible had she remained enslaved. For better or worse, it was her life that she claimed in 1796 and did not let go of until 1848. Though legally Ona would remain a fugitive slave for the rest of her life, she would never be enslaved again. I know that this episode has been longer than usual, but I thought that Ona's story was an important one to tell in its entirety. It's one that I've revisited frequently in my thoughts and my historical research many times since I first read about it, and it resonates with what I see in everyday life. I believe that Ona was an early example of what many have come to identify as the American spirit. In the face of harsh adversity, perseverance in the demand for justice and freedom. While there is still much work to do, I would hope that Ona would feel that we were much further along down the road towards ensuring those inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all Americans than we were in her day. Her story is one that reflects not only the troubles of our past, but also the strength that we must find in ourselves to face the problems of today. I thank you for letting me share Ona's life with you. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. 
Source material used for this episode can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Should you wish to read more about Ona, I recommend a book that was a major source utilized for this episode, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of the Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. Special thanks, as always, to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook, for all of his work on this episode and many others. Should you need assistance with your podcast or next audio project, he can be reached at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.